Thinking Collaborative podcast, where we showcase the amazing work that our international community of trainers is engaged in to improve schools and organizations. I'm Carol Brooks Simino, and I've worked as a teacher, a reading consultant, a trainer for cognitive coaching and adaptive schools, and for the past six years, a co-director for Thinking Collaborative. And I'm Doreen Miori Marola, and I have worked with uh, Carol Brooks Simino for the last six years. Um, as a co-director. Before that, I spent 38 years in public education, uh, English teacher, union officer, um, staff developer, coach, you name it. Uh, so I've had a very diversified career and I'm, I'm thrilled that this is my, my next phase of my life, working with Carol and Lisa and um, getting to, to talk to wonderful people who have been my inspirations and mentors. Hi, my name is Lisa Joseph, and I've worked for the Center for Cognitive Coaching and Center for Adaptive Schools um, and Thinking Collaborative for over 20 years. The last two years, I've worked as a co-director for, uh, for Thinking Collaborative with Carol and Doreen, um, and I have had the pleasure of working with Art Costa, um, with Habits of Mind um, for several years uh, early in my career. So I'm, I'm very pleased to have um, enjoyed everyone's pleasure and their, um, and their professionalism over the years. Um, it, it's really been my honor to work with everyone. So today, we are so excited. We have Art Costa, co-developer for Cognitive Coaching and Habits of Mind, a prolific writer, a sought-after trainer, and inspiration for many, many educators. As we will do with each episode, we'll ask Art several questions to gain insights into his background, his sense of the impact that Habits of Mind and Cognitive Coaching has had on the world of education, and how to remain innovative in educational leadership. Um, we'll also do a lightning round of questions at the end, just for fun. Now, Art doesn't know what these questions are, uh, nope. so I'll just get his, uh, his, his uh, thinking. So, Art, to begin, please tell us a bit about your background and how you got into the field of education. Uh, well, I um, was intending to become a doctor. My father was a doctor, and he wanted me to be a doctor, so I went to pre-med and I did all my work in science and so on. And then I got to really thinking about what the life of a doctor would be and decided that's not really what I wanted. And so I remember talking to one of my professors at, uh, at junior college and I, I said, I didn't want to disappoint my father, but I really don't want to be a doctor. And he said, well, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of doctors, so you don't have to be a medical doctor. Well, I never thought about that before. And uh, so that kind of stayed with me for a while. And I had some professors, he was one, uh, at uh, the community college who impressed me a lot. And um, one of them suggested that I become an educator. Well, I thought that was a pretty good idea. So I did um, start that off then in education and I um, worked on my bachelor's degree and then my master's degree and then of course my PhD. And my father had left me a little money when he passed away. And um, 
while I didn't become a medical doctor, I did become um, a, 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 an educational doctor. So I think he would have been proud to know that there was another Dr. Costa in the family. So uh, I became very interested in education in that way. And I've been in it ever since. And uh, I've had a, a wonderful trip in being able to work with students and work with teachers and work with administrators around the world. And it's been, it's been a wonderful time for me. So early on, you had a desire to become a doctor and you had a change of inspiration. That's and right. The, the end result was still that doctorate. That's right. So I think he would, I think my dad would have been proud of me anyhow. Yeah, you attained your goals and um, recognized um, what he valued in you. Yes. And he was a very, he was more than just a doctor. He was beloved by the community because he, um, he was looked upon as a lifesaver and uh, people really adored him. And he gave back to the community for, for many. Um, he was the youngest uh, of a family of eight born in Sicily and uh, the only one of the family that spoke English. So he was the only one that was able to go to college and uh, so he was an inspiration because of his continuous learning and his dedication to helping humanity. And I guess I picked up some of that. Uh, and speaking from personal experience, that beloved part um, was both to your father and to you. Yes. The world yeah. adores you. <laughs> and certainly you've been an inspiration uh, for, for very many people. As the originator of Habits of Mind with Benna Kalik, uh, what one habit of those 16 habits might be um, the one that most influenced or improved your professional or personal life? Well, I, um, I think probably it was metacognition. I don't think I ever really knew or understood or heard about metacognition before hearing about the Habits of Mind. Uh, but it be I became aware of the fact that you can, that a person can plan and control what goes on inside your head. And, um, and that, that was um, a, a great sense of power that you could think and you could plan to think and that you could alter your thinking and you could continually manage your thinking. And that was kind of a new idea to me. I had never heard of that before. And so um, I find that metacognition, while it is one of the habits of mind, it is also like a, a supra habit of mind. It's one that manages all of the rest of them. And so um, the, habit, the, the management of metacognition then also means managing your impulse, managing your um, ability to think interdependently. Uh, when you get stuck on a problem, uh, if you think about alternative ways, you're doing flexible thinking and creative thinking. And so it seems to be the master of all the other habits of mind. And the, the other habits of mind become the executive functions that are um, produced and evaluated and monitored uh, by your ability to think. So um, realizing that the brain has that power to think about your thinking is, is an awesome understanding 
And um, I think over the years, I've become better at managing my thinking. I've become better at um, planning for thinking. I have um, become better at looking at alternatives and thinking so that, um, so that it's, it's been more than just a habit of mind has become something that I have internalized and has helped me as well. And I hope it helped other people as well. So the, the very fact that you can stand outside of yourself, so to speak, and say that I'm not a victim, I'm not a marionette, um, I have autonomy and I, and I can, I can be hyper aware, I can persist, I can strive for accuracy, knowing that, knowing yourself and knowing your capabilities really for you um, with, was the key to unlock so many doors. Yeah, exactly. And that gives you a sense of power, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, power over yourself, power over your thinking, power over your planning. It makes you a more effective, efficient, um, efficacious kind of a person. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So as you move through your career, um, and we all have those ups and downs, we all have those hiccups or those bruised uh, elbows or those skin knees, and some people refer to them as leadership failures. Um, how has one of these instances, those leadership hiccups, um, how, is, how has one of those set you up for later success? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, there was a time in my life when I was a, a science consultant for Los Angeles County Schools. And so uh, this was in the early mid 60s. And um, I would work with schools uh, around the county in helping them um, build science instruction. And I would work with teachers in, in the small county districts around Los Angeles County to help them understand science and to have the courage to build science into their curriculum. And uh, I think I was pretty good at that. I, uh, I, I remember a lot of teachers who were willing to experiment with science activities that uh, many other teachers would shy away from. So building that culture. And this was at a time um, when space was being explored in the early 60s. So I became very fascinated with uh, space exploration and uh, I put on workshops in space exploration and space travel. And uh, during the summer, I would have a, um, a summer space camp, so to speak, in which teachers would attend and they would learn about space exploration. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a great time at, at that time because that was very fascinating. It was on the forefront of people's thoughts. Well, um, one time, uh, one summer, I met a fellow named Jim Bernardo, and I invited him to come and talk to the group because uh, he was the director of educational programs for NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So I got to know him, and um, he uh, surprised me by inviting me to become uh, the first um, educational programs director for NASA outside of Washington, DC. At that time, all educational programs were located at the headquarters in Washington, DC, and they wanted to expand and to decentralize. So they asked me to become uh, the, first, uh, uh, AS, the first NASA 
educational programs officer and to be located in California and Santa Monica specifically and to work out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory um, on space exploration. So my job was to, so I accepted that. And uh, it was a big thrill for me and I accepted that. And um, my job was to bring space exploration to colleges and universities and schools throughout the 11 Western states, which was a big job, but uh, it was a lot of fun traveling and meeting people. And so I was with NASA for um, a little over two years. However, um, it, while it was fun being with NASA and, and, and uh, exploring space and meeting all of the astronauts and so on, that was a great time. But quite frankly, I started missing teachers and missing kids. And I got very tired of waiting to see the, um, uh, the higher ups in, in Washington, DC. I'd fly back to Washington and sit there for a couple of days just waiting to see someone. And this didn't appeal to me very much. So I decided that I would try to look for something else. Well, I had a friend at that time who was assistant superintendent in Sacramento County Schools and she was retiring. And um, she said, why don't you apply for this job? And so uh, I really had a failure as the director of NASA, although I think I did a good job, but uh, it, it wasn't for me and I could see that. And so I uh, turned in my resignation and I applied for the job as assistant superintendent for Sacramento County Schools and I did get it. So I moved to Sacramento from, from Los Angeles, which was a great idea <laughs> to get out of the smog and the fog and the traffic. But um, I, I, I'm afraid that I, I did have a failure in life. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't committed to what I was doing. Uh, I, I miss the kids, I miss teachers, I miss being in classrooms. Although I work with others who were in classrooms, but I wasn't. And uh, so I, I picked up my bags and moved elsewhere and got back into education. And that was a good move, but I, it, was, it was kind of a failure on my part. So that director, directorship of NASA was exciting and you were able to explore um, different ways educators could learn and grow within that prog program. Uh, you were tugged back into true education um, because that was your passion and you recognized. Yes. yes, and I realized that, right. So earlier, our Carol said that you were a prolific writer and you are a prolific writer but I know that you probably have also a prodigious reading list as well. <laughs> and when you think about the books uh, that you've read that have become friends of yours in your life, what book or books um, has most influenced your leadership? Well, probably the most uh, influential book for me was one written by my um, mentor, uh, for my doctorate, and uh, his name was Cecil Parker uh, at uh, UC Berkeley. And he wrote a book called Process as Content. And um, I, I guess that was a new, a new understanding for me that the processes of thinking and the processes of decision-making and the processes of 
choosing and the processes of problem solving could become the actual content, that that's what you teach. Uh, because up until that time, uh, my content was uh, from the sciences and uh, uh, teaching science and distances to the stars and the names of the planets and so on. That was all very important to me. So um, this book was a life changer for me. And um, uh, actually, I wrote three books since then also called Processes Content. I, they had different subtitles because I wanted to extend that idea. And um, uh, so I work with some other authors and what we did was to put together um, uh, several books that dealt with that concept of using thinking processes, problem solving as the content that you teach rather than uh, 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 being a side, uh, an off, uh, a side benefit of, process, of the content. And so um, it was, that was at a time when we were going through a great transformation, uh, looking at content in a different way, and rather saying that, um, that learning to think and thinking to learn was as important as content. And not that content wasn't important, but it's the way that you put it together, the, the way you thought about it, the way you constructed it, the meaning that you brought to it that was more important than just the content itself. So that was a that was life transforming for me. That was one. Another book that that I was a life changer for me was uh, Instrumental Enrichment. And when I was working with Reuven Feuerstein, and he had uh, he developed the theory of cognitive modifiability, which was a new one for me too, that you could actually change and alter a person's thinking processes by uh, through through education. And uh, that really is the basis also for cognitive coaching um, in that the, the, the basis for cognitive coaching is that um, a person's behaviors are determined by their values, their thinking processes, their attitudes, their beliefs. And if you wish to change or alter or enhance behavior, you don't do it directly as the behaviorists would have us do but instead you change the thinking processes. So that was a new um, concept for me that, that, uh, that you can actually alter a person's cognition. So it was cognitive modifiability and that's the basis for cognitive coaching. And that was life-changing for me as well. So those two books, Processes, Content, and of course they're very much related because the, the thinking processes is what exactly what it is. So thinking processes and instrumental enrichment were, were life-changing for me. So again, ties back to your, your key umbrella, all-encompassing habit of mind of metacognition. Yes. And really centering on the idea in one regard that um, instead of rote memorization of content, the idea of teaching critical thinking and how to think critically for you were extremely um, almost monumental in the work that you were going to do in education. And yes, in the second, the second one about modifiability, I love the quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Yes, and exactly. What you were hoping to accomplish was then to 
empower people to be able to think critically, not just memorize a bunch of facts, but to be able to stand back and look at something with very fresh perspective. Exactly. Exactly. And that was pretty much life changing at that time. It was not a popular theory um, in the early 80s and so on. And so uh, I think Bob Garmson and I pioneered those ideas uh, at that time and uh, tried to bring them to the forefront. And thank God you did. <laughs> it's, it's changed a lot of people's lives since that time. That's well, I hope. And that's very satisfying to know that. Uh, after all these years that you've had an influence and had meaning to other people, that's uh, very gratifying. It's called legacy art. You have a tremendous legacy. Thank you. So knowing that questioning is critical in any form of thinking, any sort of processing, like you just said, uh, what might be some of the most important questions that educators um, might be asking themselves right now? Well, um, <laughs> at this particular time, I think one of the main questions is how can I stay healthy, stay focused, uh, stay dedicated? Um, is my contribution to education and to the world? So that um, uh, a person who is dedicated to education has to be a continual learner themselves. They have to enhance the learning of other people. They have to uh, support any kind of movement that would help other people grow and learn and change and accept uh, divergent ideas. So I think that's um, something that I've tried to do is to um, continue to learn. And um, while I think I've slowed down a lot over the years, but I, I am still very interested in the learning process and, and how to continue to learn. So um, it's, it's preserving a drive that I think all human beings have, and that is to grow and to learn and to experiment and to be curious and to explore and to uh, continually improve is that drive for efficacy and, uh, and flexibility that, that, that keeps us young and keeps us going. I would hope that, um, uh, that I have been and that I hope I've inspired others to be continuous learners, continually to strive for learning, to pursue their curiosity, their experimentation, their uh, continuous growth and the search for efficacy. And so um, that's been, I think, one of my goals in life. And if I've helped or inspired other people to do that, I would be happy. So you would implore educators to do a, a deep self-exploration. Um, Absolutely. And then to do some recognition of things that would help them to be those continuous learners that even yes. though we, we are born with that drive to continually learn, you know, it also is, is a, uh, something we need to be metacognitive about. Yes, I, I, I worry about kids who get turned off to learning, who say, I don't care, it doesn't matter, who cares? Um, uh, I'm not interested in that. That, that, that worries me. Um, I think all kids should be inspired 
to be continuous learners and to grow and to strive and to give kids that impetus to learn is uh, what teachers should dedicate their lives to, I believe. So really it's about deep-seated beliefs. As educators, we need to be that inspiration that helps yes, kids to learn. Right. You often talk about uh, empowering people to, be, to have the capabilities to solve problems that the world hasn't even really introduced to us yet that, that um, they would have the tools and the skills and the dispositions to be able to problem solve when faced with um, really daunting prospects. Exactly. If you had a crystal ball, what would you see as the future of education looking like um, in 10 years from now, Art? Well, that's, uh, that's a hard one, mainly because um, it's hard to know what the technology is going to present us with, um, it's, it changes so rapidly. So I think that there's gonna be much greater use of technology in education in the future. This pandemic and what we've learned in terms of remote learning is just the very beginning. And I think we're gonna see more and more of this. However, um, I also am impressed with the kind of technology that puts people together. And um, I don't think there's any substitute for small group um, learning together, instruction, uh, small group instruction in which kids then can solve problems together, can learn how to think interdependently, can um, uh, work on problems of a significant matter over a longer period of time, something that teases their interest. And we see kids doing this often when left to their own devices. And so I think that uh, education in the future is going to not only capture more technology, but also to use that technology for more personalized and small group kind of instruction. I think the days of having 30, 40 kids in a classroom at the same time uh, is pretty much over. And uh, uh, with, with the use of technology and the use of personalized learning, uh, we can just do a lot better than that. And where kids thrive is where they are challenged, I think, in a small group, where they have to interact with others, where they have to listen to and come to consensus along with others, where they have to think interdependently and solve problems, not, not only alone, but also as members of the group. And the more we can enhance that, the better we'll become. So it's, uh, it's hard to know what that crystal ball exists because because we don't know what the technology holds uh, or, or what, uh, what even schools are gonna look like in those days. But what I'm hoping for is more small group and personalized kind of instruction and, and more uh, self-directed instruction. We know, for example, that um, left to their own devices, kids continue to learn. This has been shown again and again. And so we need to learn how to get out of their way and supply them with the learning tools and then let them go do it. And they will, and they will continue to learn and they will learn probably faster. And maybe they won't learn what we think they should learn, but the important thing is that they will continue learning. For you then, um, regardless of the technology and what the physical plant looked like for education, for schools, um, institutions of education, 
you know in your heart of hearts that collaboration, uh, community, creativity, and that idea to be able to explore what it is that kind of feeds your soul, uh, finding your niche in life and being able to go, go um, towards that is never gonna go away. It's never gonna go out of education. It's never gonna go away because it's inherent in being human. Mm -hmm because that's the way we are. That's the way humans are built, is to continue learning, to search things out, to work autonomously, to work interdependently as well. So yes, they're pursuing our natural instincts. And, and um, it's one of the, the last of the 16 habits of mind that I remember teaching in my own classrooms is about remaining open to continuous learning. Exactly. And for you, you feel that that's an innate drive that people have. To exactly. aspire to know more and to be to be more, we the human race would not be where it is today if it didn't have that drive, for sure. Well, we're going to start the uh, lightning round. This is a very different round. <laughs> and I asked you earlier before we started to record if your sense of taste and smell was still all intact, because my question for you, being a fellow paisana, okay. Yes is what is your favorite Italian dish and what wine would you pair with it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, my um, favorite Italian dish is um, uh, the, the pastas that, that I make. <laughs> I don't make the pastas, but I make the, the sauces and so on. So um, a good hearty Italian red sauce with tomatoes and some meat and uh, uh, lots of vegetables that is cooked for hours. Um, every once in a while, I will do that. And it comes out wonderful and everybody enjoys it. And you put it over some good um, uh, different kinds of pastas and uh, it, it's wonderful. So yeah, I, I do that often. And that's about my favorite. I, I also um, love uh, things like um, uh, vegetables within the pasta. For example, um, uh, eggplant parmesan is one of my favorites, where it's got lots of good cheese and eggplants and that is uh, embedded in the noodles and so on. That's wonderful. So yeah, I don't, I don't make that very often, but I can and I have, and uh, uh, I serve it on special occasion. D being a good Italian chef, is a lot of work, yeah. as you probably know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you spend a lot of time in the kitchen and you have to have a lot of ingredients, but it's all worthwhile and, and it makes it wonderful. So I look forward to it and I enjoy it. And what wine with your eggplant or your Sunday sauce? What would well, you pair with that? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, my personal choice is Pinot Noir, but uh, uh, from Italy, I like the Chiantis. There are lots of good Chiantis that are blends and that come from the Chianti region and that are well aged and and they're they're terrific so a good Chianti is is choice well I'll tell you what if I come over sometimes Art I'll make my pasta and bring it Very I make pasta fun. so <laughs> we, we can do some cooking together how about that that sounds great Art I'd like that <laughs> I, I right, say, how, about, how about in about two weeks <laughs> okay good <laughs> Okay, um, Art, what, what's your best childhood memory? My best childhood memory? Oh, that's going to take some thought. Well, I, I, I think 
it's uh, it has to do with family. Um, I have a brother and a sister, both of them departed now. Um, but uh, when we would do things as a family together, my father and my mother, uh, and we would um, travel together. My father was a great hunter as well as being a physician. And so we would go out to the desert and um, uh, he would go hunting and I would follow in his footsteps behind, behind him. And uh, it was exhausting, but um, to be with him and to be with my mother and uh, sister and brother and those times were pretty special. They left a lasting impression on me. So um, I think I think that was one of my favorite memories is having my family together and doing things together, planning, having fun together. Very impressive. It's all about that love and those family bonds. Oh yes, yes, and I I still carry those on today. I have three daughters and six granddaughters and two great granddaughters and one great grandson. So um, the family is a very uh, source of great pleasure for me doing things in the family. In fact, right now I have two of my daughters here who have been taking care of Nancy and me and, and uh, uh, except they're spoiling me something awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's never a problem. No, no I don't think so. This, this lightning round question is kind of unusual. If you could be anything else besides a human being, what would oh. it be? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think I would be, <laughs> well, I, 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 I kind of like dogs. So I wouldn't mind being a nice pooch for somebody. Uh, and uh, I, we've had dogs over the years in my life and I miss them. And um, so I guess if I were reincarnated, I would come back as a canine somehow. Um, uh, if, as, long, as long as I was treated well by uh, whoever my owners were, <laughs> they'd have to be very tender and, and gentle. So what is that they say that dog spelled backwards is God and that uh, they really are delightful, loyal, loving creatures, right? And especially when, when it's reciprocated by the, the people who have been chosen to love them. So yes, yeah, exactly. I think I would like that too. Exactly. Yeah, that's nice. Carol, do you want one more question for Art and then? Yeah, one more question. Um, Art, who inspires you? Who inspired me? Who inspires you? Um, several people inspired me. Um, one uh, was, uh, as I mentioned, the professor that I had that wrote that book, Process as Content, name was Cecil Parker. Um, and he was my uh, uh, chairman of my doctorate at uh, UC Berkeley. And he was just uh, an inspiration of a man. He was true to his beliefs. He took time with me. He cared about me. Um, we would spend long hours together talking about educational issues, and I'm sure that he shaped my educational outlook as I still have it today. And, and so he was a great inspiration to me, and uh, I loved him dearly. 
But there was another person as well. Her name was Howardine Hoffman. And um, uh, just a little bit of background. When I was working on my master's degree at, at USC, I took a class. It was a seminar um, in, uh, in education. And it was taught by this lady named um, Dr. Howardine Hoffman. And um, I didn't know who she was, but I took the class. And I became more and more entranced with her ideas and her ability and her demeanor as, a, as an educator. And um, uh, so I, I struck up a very strong friendship with her. Well, one day I got a telephone call. Now, this is when I was a teacher. I got a telephone call and it was from Howardine Hoffman. And she said, um, would you be interested in joining the Los Angeles County Superintendent of Schools office? And I said, are you sure you have the right person? That's really what I said. And she said, I said, are you not thinking about that other guy who's really smart in our class? <laughs> she said, no, no, I know who I'm talking to. So I said, well, yes, I would be. Now this was after I had taught for about four years. So I was still pretty green. And um, anyhow, she invited me to join the Los Angeles County School staff. And um, I did. And I, I, I remember my salary changed from $3,750 a month, excuse me, a year to $5,600 a year. Wow. That was like manna from heaven. I was rich <laughs> at that time. That was in the early 60s. And um, so I did join Los Angeles County Schools. And um, Howard Dean was always a um, mentor and a model. And to this day, to this day, when I'm making tough decisions, I say to myself, how would Howard Dean solve this? What would Howard Dean do? And so she has been a lasting resource to me as a model and as, a, uh, uh, as an educator uh, who practiced and who exhibited all of the high qualities that I could imagine. Um, when I wrote my book uh, called Developing Minds, I dedicated the book to Howardine because she left a lasting impression on me. And um, I will forever be indebted to her for shaping my career and, and uh, having an influence on my life. So really a recurring theme for this conversation we've had tonight has been on relationships and inspiration. Yes, she was an inspiration to me. And the sure. reciprocity in that. Yep. Well, Art, yep. we wanna thank you so very, very much for spending uh, this hour with us. And um, we're grateful for everything that you've done for us and for educators around the world. So thank, um, you. thank, thank you again for, for coming and sitting with us and, and thinking out loud. And I learned things tonight that, you know, I've known you for like 20 years since the 2000. And I found out things tonight that I never knew, which were very interesting <laughs> and exciting for me. I hope I didn't reveal too many secrets. No, no, but you didn't. You just, just the right amount, perfectly. Um, so to all of you that are listening in, thank you for listening to our Thinking Collaborative podcast. Uh, please go to our website at thinkingcollaborative.com for resources, books, and upcoming seminar opportunities. 
follow us on Instagram or Twitter at think underscore collab. In our next podcast, we will be interviewing uh, Bruce Wellman. And we think that you will enjoy that as well. So hope you'll tune in. Thank you very much. Stay well, everyone. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me and allowed me to share my ideas. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.